truly a hope-inspiring piece of scripture. Um, on my letterman jacket when I graduated from high school, this was indeed the verse I had on my back. So you may already be wondering and kind of holding your breath, why in the living, you know, in the name of the living God, would someone read this from the Old Testament? And I promise we'll get there in just a second, because what I want to talk about uh, is that there is reality in life uh, that sometimes would be easier without the complexity of life. Uh, but as we are people who are still living and currently experiencing life, we know that life can be more complicated. Uh, I have been reminded of the full circle nature of life uh, for myself. My six-year-old son, it was his birthday last week, very exciting. And one of the things I was excited to introduce him to, which has been deeply formative to me, and I know you'll be surprised by this, I'm a huge nerd, is that I was finally going to show him Mario Kart. Uh, now, he doesn't understand... Mario Kart and the Super Nintendo with lack of graphics, and I, I, he's not quite old enough for me to be able to say, well, back in my day, I had to slave away with a, with a controller that was connected to the console, and if you wanted to play with your friends, you know, friends, they had to actually be in the room. You know, these horrible things you used to have to do, you had to sit with three or four other people in the same room and play video games, but no, my son is playing the Mario Kart 8 Deluxe on the Switch, and he's loving it, and we're taking turns. Uh, now, by taking turns, this is really an aspirational goal. It's mostly him playing, and we're on the same team. Uh, and I'm sometimes allowed to take a lap of one of the races. If you're not familiar with Mario Kart, think of your favorite totally non-stereotypical Italian plumber riding on a go-kart with shells and bananas and ink blots, all kinds of fun stuff and beautiful courses. It's just kind of a fun and silly game. But I finally got the controller away from my son long enough to say, I'm going to race all three laps. I love Mario Kart. I've literally been playing Mario Kart longer than you've been alive. Now, I get that you're only six, so that's not a huge thing, but <laughs> since I was in my early, almost sixes, I've been playing this game. Give me a race. And he, so he says, fine. We're sitting on the sofa, and he starts slowly creeping towards me, kind of as children are prone to do, sometimes putting pressure on my arm, which I, you know, I don't want to be a stickler about it, but it's kind of hard to navigate the controller when you got pressure. I'm lefty. <laughs> but he starts doing weird things where he's kind of whispering playfully in my ear. He's like, Dad. Dad, you, you totally missed that power box. You didn't get an item. Dad, you totally missed that ramp. Dad, you're, you're driving really badly. I don't know how much longer I can let you go. And then finally he says, Dad, I've realized that we need to actually race each other. And I'm feeling a little hurt already. You know, my self-esteem is low. But then he just, as only a six-year-old can do, delivers the knockout blow. He says, listen, Dad, I want to race against you, but you got to know I'm going to win. I'm going to win every time. And you're going to be very sad by the end of the race. And I'm like, wow. My six-year-old has already developed this innate trash talk when it comes to video games. I am both proud and deeply humbled by how good he is at it, right? And I was kind of thinking about, as I was telling my mom this story, she's like, oh, yes, tell me more about this six-year-old boy talking to his parents about video games, right? She was thinking of some other six-year-old son she had. I don't know. Um, but my point in all of that is that life seems to come full circle. And I was loving the idea of me sitting with my Super Nintendo with my parents now me sitting with a Switch, a Nintendo Switch, with my son, playing something that seems innocuous, which is a video game, but enjoying something that I've enjoyed, talking a little trash, which is always great, but thinking about how life kind of passes on these stories, and they're beautiful and cute. But then we may hear passages, and we'll get to in just a second, like in Second Kings, where we know that life can sometimes not be so beautiful and cute. Life can sometimes be very real. It can be hard. It can be difficult. And there's a temptation, I think, to always want to kind of romanticize 
the past to always look to the, the best things in life, which is good. It's a human instinct. It's what helps us kind of get back up off the carpet every once in a while when we need to experience hope. But we think fondly about the good old days. And we want to try to look at life and say, well, if I can conform it into the simplicity of a hopeful bubble, maybe it'll be easier. And that can be real tempting. It can be real tempting to try to force that kind of simplicity in our lives because then it makes us feel safe. It makes things feel orderly. I don't know about you. I I tend to not like stress and anxiety. Uh, I tend to like to get up in the morning and feel like everything is great. Uh, When I wake up, my windows and my bedroom have beautiful light come in. And the other day when there was a storm approaching, it was dark and overcast and gloomy when I woke up. I would prefer the sunnier wake up than the gloomier wake up. I get all of that. But the hard truth is that you can only shield yourself from the reality of your situation for so long before life just keeps being life. It is what it is. It keeps happening. And what also happens too, and I've noticed for myself and as I've serve longer in the life of the church is the more we try to force this idea of simplicity, of normalcy, of everything's fine, of nothing else is going wrong or bad is happening, that's when shame can creep up. That's where we can really judge ourselves. That's where we can become sad, unhappy. And the beautiful thing about the church, the beautiful, hopeful truth, even about this passage in 2 Kings, I promise, is that our life doesn't have to be that way. Shame, and I love the song today, there's no grave of shame, anxiety, past actions that can hold us compared to the hope and promise that God provides. We're always free to step back into the life God's calling us to lead. Let's jump into 2 Kings, and let's talk about one of the most uh, unhelpfully named prophets of all time, Elisha, not to be confused with his dynamic part who, you know, is part of the Passover field, uh, meal, Elijah. Uh, it, it's really nice. It'd be like if someone said, oh, Pastor Jameson is here. Uh, and then someone said, oh, no, it's not Pastor Jameson. It's Pastor Jameson uh, is here. You would think, what's the difference? Uh, what? That doesn't make any sense. But yes, so for preachers, for the last thousand years, we've had to be wrestling with making sure it's ja or sha. But what's just happened is there's actually been a transition in the life of Elijah. Because Elisha, because Elijah, I'm already doing it. I knew it. I knew that was dangerous to point that out and then immediately jump into a passage. Anyways, uh, it's a Chekhov's gun situation there. But this whole, this whole idea is that Elijah has just been carried up in a chariot of fire to heaven because it was pronounced by God that he would be one of those who was so faithful that would not die. And so Elisha has been on the road with Elijah. He's been walking with him. He's been begging uh, Elijah to stay. And this chariot comes and takes him up and he looks up and he sees his former mentor, carried up into heaven. And now he realizes, both literally and metaphorically, he takes up the garment of Elijah. He puts on the mantle. He is now one of the supreme prophets of God, and he's stepping into this new reality. So i got to say, he's having one of those stressful mornings, all right? The light and security, the simplicity that he's known, following after Elijah, even though he trusts in what Elijah has told him, now brings Elijah to this moment of, now I have to be the one that follows so he steps out, and he performs a minor miracle where he purifies some water. And then he steps up close to the town of Bethel, and he has this very unusual exchange with a group of youth or young people, depending how you translate it. We'll get to that in just a second. 
they have an exchange about the, the nature of the pastor's hair, calling him bald, and I'm really thankful that Daniel's not here today because we can just avoid all of that confusion. Sorry, hair is in my head. I can't really see. The point is, uh, they call him bald-headed. They're making fun of him, and he calls down a curse, and we're thinking, all right, well, this is the Old Testament, so things tend to get weird, but we don't think it gets this weird because then she bears or bears, depending on the translation, run out of the woods and maul these people. And there's no other explanation. Elisha just kind of goes on his way and goes up to Mount Carmel, and the story's over. A classic Old Testament passage where we probably rightly say, you know what? Let's just go ahead and skip a bit of 2 Kings. Uh, fast forward. Let's get to some of those minor prophets. Where does this Jesus guy show up? Um, but again, that's our brain telling us, oh, man, this is in the Bible. I, as someone that believes in the church, thinks that Scripture is a good idea to read every once in a while. But now I'm acknowledging this is a passage that if someone asks me, I want to act like I can't hear them, uh, <laughs> that we're having a mistranslation, because I don't want to deal with a text that I don't know how to deal with, right? Second Kings is not, isn't obvious. Like if I get up and say, God's all about hope and love and forgiveness, you might rightly say, but what about that passage about the bears that eat people? And I would say, I can't hear you in the back. The point is, God's all about love and peace and forgiveness. So what's going on here? Like I said, I think there's two tracks. One is, uh, in the Old Testament, they don't shy away from prophets being very real people. Elisha is a real person with real stress and anxiety. I'm not here to judge uh, what it means to follow after Elijah. I'm not here to judge what it means to put on the mantle uh, of God's prophet, but it does feel like this is the original biblical case for a Snickers commercial. Hey, Elisha, you're not yourself when you're hungry. You should eat a Snickers bar because when you don't, you tend to call bears out of the wilderness to attack people. I don't want to judge. I'm just saying. So you could attack it from that angle. And the other angle, too, is like, what's the business with youth? Are we, are we talking about kids? And that's where it gets a little confusing. It seems to suggest in, in the original Hebrew that we're talking about youth that are either young people, young men, or perhaps youth in the sense of their morality or kind of societal disposition. They are young thought, meaning that they aren't people that follow the right ways, if you will. And Bethel itself also gives us a clue because earlier, uh, and you may be skipping kings in general, and I kind of uh, but if you were to peruse Elijah's story, you'll, you'll remember that Jeroboam actually desecrates Bethel by setting up alternative altars to other gods. And so Bethel is kind of a site of worship of deities, of powers that are not God. And so we have another kind of mini vignette of the whole narrative that's been going on through the people of Israel, that these prophets show up, they try to tell people to repent and believe and folks, young in mind perhaps, not knowing about you know, perhaps the ways of God, they're, they're practicing some customs, they're worshiping some deities that are not beneficial or helpful to them. And so in a lot of ways, this fits more into the Old Testament story than we may think. Because we see time and time again the people of God struggling to be the people of God. False altars being raised, prophets along, striking them, even the whole image of Mark Carmel. We remember with Elijah when he battles all those prophets in that fire-starting uh, competition, which the Boy Scout in me is very troubled by, because I'm like, where have you really probably thought about, you know, uh, and then, he, then it makes me think about Smokey the Bear, and then we're all full circle, because we're back to bears. Right? The point is, it is weird, but it's also fitting into the narrative. But still, what do we do in this specific narrative? Well, I think one, 
as much as I would love to act like I just punked you and that this wasn't really my text for today, we have to recognize it's part of the book. Uh, maybe it feels like an inconvenient truth to us. Maybe it's not a passage you're going to put, like I said, in your letterman jacket when you graduate from high school. Maybe this is not what you're going to be reading uh, during a wedding service or any kind of vow renewal. Maybe this isn't something that comes up in a light conversation, but it is the story of God's people, and it has to be dealt with. <laughs> and what's amazing to me is that I think God's people are at their best when they're willing to admit when they're not at their best. I think the story of Scripture is the most powerful because it involves real people doing real things that, frankly, are not great all the time, and yet the faith in favor of God is constant. The love and mercy of God is constant. And we see that that Jesus guy that we're desperately hoping will show up in Matthew very quickly is not some answer to a defunct system, but is a reminder of what's been going on in Scripture all along, that God's love has always been there for us. It's we who are the ones who have struggled to embrace it. So in this exchange between the prophet of God on his first day on the job to these youth who are just desecrating the idea of worship to their exchange, to this idea of bears coming out and kind of the idea of the wilderness taking them back over. You could read this as metaphor, allegory, however you want to do it, but what we're having here is that there are ways of God that are not of God. And ultimately, the ways of God are going to win out. And what we know from the person of Christ is that the ways of God are about love and hope, about forgiveness and redemption, and that we don't need to worry about the she-bears of our lives because the grace of God is sufficient. So as we really reflect on this text for just a moment, I have a question for you. If you were honest, is your life really that simple? Do you think even with all of my prowess of verbal gathering, I could talk to you for 30 seconds and do justice to the complexity of your life? Could I say, hey, I've had coffee with this person once. Let me tell you everything about them, uh, all their deep hopes and ambitions and desires, uh, insecurities, their high school crushes, uh, the love spurned, the love lost, uh, the ways in which they asked the wrong person to prom and then got asked to prom? Could I, could I summarize all of your teenage angst years, maybe those post-college years, maybe those, those situations that came later in life that made you a different person? Could I do all of that in 30 seconds? How many of you would be convinced and then would be willing to bet $500 that I could do it? Yeah? Raise your hand. I could do it? $1,000? 2000 who, who just wants to give money? You know, that, the point is... No, none of you would say, Jameson, we love you. It's nice that you're visiting. But no, you can't know someone in that brief amount of time. Life, my life, is deeply meaningful to me. It's deeply impacted me. It's shaped me, and it can't be summarized. And I would say exactly. Your life is beautiful because it's not simple. Your life is beautiful because you probably feel like there could be bare moments in it. Mistakes you've made where maybe you feel like you have been the mauler. Uh, mistakes you have received where you feel like you've been the molly. And not to simplify that, there's been hurt dealt, hurt received. There's been those moments of pain that are hard for you to talk about. That on, if you're honest and I'm honest, you would look at your life and say, hey, when you're writing the, you know, you're talking to your biographer because we'll all have one of those. When you're writing my biography, let's just skip the middle school years, okay? I think that it would be better for everyone. Let's just go from 6 to 26. No one will ask questions. It will be fine. We all have those feelings. But what I love is that God says, 
I love you, all of you. I know all of you, and nothing prevents that love from reaching you. Nothing prevents that peace from finding you. No grave, again, that image, can hold you. Because one has already come who has conquered death and the grave to say, even in some moments of brokenness, even in some moments of beauty, whatever the composition of your life is, it is loved by God and you are cherished. So it is strange, still, perhaps, to look at 2 Kings and say, oh, man, let me tell you about the faithfulness of God. I, 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 it's okay. You don't have to break my heart. This won't be your first piece of scripture you'll go to. But I do hope as you go through life, as you talk with other people, as you, perhaps as you explore scripture more fully, if you're new uh, to the faith, you lead with curiosity. A curiosity that knows that I trust that ultimately God works for the good of those who call on God's name. I trust that God's love and grace is sufficient. And so when I see something I don't understand or I hear a story I don't understand or I have something difficult that happens, I'm going to lean in with curiosity because I know that's where God is doing some of God's best work. In situations that are left our own devices, we would want to smooth away. God says, no, I want to explore those rough places together, because that's where real hope and healing can be found. Will you pray with me? God, we're not going to lie, this is a strange passage. Uh, but frankly, God, we're not going to lie, sometimes our lives feel strange. It feels like things happen, moments occur, Places rise up in our lives that are hard for us to discuss or share. And we may try to hide them, conceal them, not seek out ways to deal and process through. God, if we feel that anxiety, I would pray that in this space, this time of reflection, you would speak words of hope and comfort to us. Peace and wholeness. That it's okay when we're not okay because you are faithful, you are true, and no matter what sits heavy on our hearts, we can raise and lift that up to you. Knowing you speak words of healing even here today. In this moment, Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, Dear Lord above, God Almighty, God of love, please look down and see my people through. Tea. 